I've just got off the number 19 tram along the Royal Parade and I'm walking into what almost seems like a secret garden tucked away in a corner of the University of Melbourne. I can hear birds singing from treetops and students picnicking among plants and trees from around the world. There's a cactus from Peru, a cypress from Mexico, even a palm tree from the Canary Islands. This is the System Garden, founded in 1856 as a teaching garden. It has been here almost as long as the university itself. But if you visited this place 200 years ago, the quiet chatter in the background would be Woiwurrung, the language of the traditional owners. The trees would be red gums and the ground would be full of myrnong or yam daisy, a staple ingredient in Wurundjeri life. There are a few native Australian species planted here, but there are a whole lot more in the university herbarium overlooking System Garden. The thing is, none of them are actually alive. I'm Angus Thompson, and this is Uncurated, a podcast from the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne. Each episode, we take one object from the university's collections and look at the forgotten stories behind them. This week, one plant, many names. Reporter Mustafa Nuristani finds echoes of his own history in the struggle to recognise the contribution of Indigenous knowledge to science. To be honest, I never thought I'd be talking about a plant. It's hard to get excited about something you can't touch, smell or feel because you're in lockdown. But then I heard about emu bush. I typed it in Google and saw an image of a plant with purple tubular flowers and soft silvery emerald green leaves. But there were more. Some had pink globes with white tentacles like pins in a pincushion. Others had sunshine yellow petals. It's a plant that takes many forms and has many uses. The University of Melbourne's herbarium has hundreds of emu bush plants, according to their curator, Joe Birch. The component of our collection that is digitised is 403 objects, which are the pressed and preserved herbarium specimens. That number will provide a minimum. So there is a large number of specimens that are not yet databased and catalogued in our system. I'm looking at a painting called Emu Bush Dreaming. It's made up of red, yellow and white circular strokes going round and round, rippling inwards as if the whole universe is coming to a central point. Sitting in front of that painting is the artist, Mark Sadler, a Wiradjuri man from Wagga Wagga, or as he calls it, Wagga Wagga, which is place of many crows. Our emu bush is incredibly important to our people. I actually grow that at home. I grow the bush that that crawls along the ground. First Nations people sometimes use emu bush for the ritual known as the smoking ceremony. They gather bunches of emu bush together with other plants and put them on a fire. The ceremony is supposed to clear out bad spirits and welcome new members to the community. But this is not the only thing that the plant does. The emu bush does several things for us, but the main things are it's a medicine plant. The main reason why I still grow it now is for my barbie, my father. I prepare it in the right way and make it into a uh, medicine or a lotion. He's able to apply that to his knee joints and his elbows and his, his joints that stops inflammation, a bit like Voltaren. It goes into the skin much easier than Voltaren. It stops inflammation. 
Uh, also, on some people, it's also good for rashes and eczema. It's not a plant so much that we eat. It's a plant we use for medicine, but we can make a very light uh, tea out of that, and that helps us with constipation and also some stomach ulcers. So that's just one plant, berrigan, on you call emu bush. Mark called it berrigan, but in Australia, it's commonly known as emu bush. No one seems to know why. When I Googled it, Google said it was because it could survive the hot deserts of Australia, just like the large native birds. But in the scientific community, it's called a completely different name, Eremophila. I first heard that from University of South Australia's Dr. Susan Semple, who has researched the plant extensively. We've looked probably at around, I'd say, about 70 Eremophila species over in various projects. And what we've been particularly interested in is looking at the antibacterial properties of those plants um, and also some of their anti-inflammatory properties as well. Talking to her, it's clear that Western science is only now discovering what Indigenous people have always known about the powers of the berrigan or emu bush or Eremophila. She acknowledges that openly. The Aboriginal peoples of Australia were the first people to research it. That's what I always say. You know, we've just come along later. And I guess from a Western science perspective, being able to find a similar activities as Aboriginal peoples have already known about through their immense knowledge. But this isn't always the case. Mark Sadler's experiences have been different. Sometimes we find that this information gets used and it doesn't get the people that the scientists and that original spoke to don't get recognised for what they're saying. Mark, what's the best way for scientists to recognise the Indigenous wisdom of plants? So that's, I mean, to be able to utilise Eradrian Aboriginal language first for these plants and then have the scientific name, Latin name, English name second, that shows a lot of respect because normally what it is is the other way around. And they'll roll into all this stuff, which has got nothing to do with the sacred and ceremonial uses for it. It's got nothing to do with the connection the country for my people through that plant to what we use it for. Not just a plant, it's a very specific thing to our people and it's very important to the bush, it's very important to the animals. So it's it's a holistic thing, mate. It's not just, uh, you know, this is what it is, scientific name, lab, mate. We're not interested in all that. This issue of names really speaks to me. When I came to Australia from Afghanistan 21 years ago, people had difficulty saying my name, Mustafa. My classmates wanted to call me Peter or Muzi. It felt like there was this attitude that if something is hard to pronounce, then it should be changed. But I refused. If you want to know me, you should call me by the name my parents gave me. I felt that changing my name would take away my connection to my culture my language, my identity. All of this was at the back of my mind as I thought about the Berrigan or emu bush. But I didn't mention it when I asked Susan Semple why scientists didn't use indigenous names. Different Aboriginal language groups have different names for the plant as well. So there isn't one name that I can use that captures all of those different names for a start. If, if I was talking about it maybe collected in a certain place, then it would be appropriate for me to use the name that comes from that place. I think that's a fair assessment in, in a broader sense, yes, that um, there has been a lot of knowledge taken and used in without consent and that needs certainly to be acknowledged 
Um, I think things are starting to change and I'd like to think that we're trying to do things better now. What would doing things better mean? I asked Mark Sadler what kind of changes he would like to see. He said that Aboriginal communities feel sidelined. They want their names to be used in Indigenous languages, their voices to be heard, their knowledge to be recognised. They need to come and listen. They need to sit at the table with us and listen and let Aboriginal people in Australia be the drivers of a lot of this information because a lot of times we're sitting in the back seats and someone else is driving the bus about culture and plants. We want to be up in that front seat. We want to be driving that sometimes. So I think is to involve Radri and Aboriginal people in their programs, to involve us right at the start, before they start, sit down and have a genuine conversation. People to remember we've been doing this for a long time and we haven't got a lot of credit for what we've done for a long time. I kept thinking about what this would mean. To me, acknowledging the traditional owners of the land really means recognizing their knowledge. So I went back to the curator at Melbourne University's Herbarium, Jo Birch, and I asked her this. Dr. Birch, I went through your website and scrolled through hundreds of Emi Bush samples, and each has a unique Latin name, but found no mention of the indigenous name for even one. Do you think Mark has a point here? Yeah. Look, I think it's really, um, I, I can fully understand it, Mustafa. It's, I, it, that, that is oftentimes, historically, you know, how can you disagree with that? It's, is that the way we'd want it to be? It's not. It's not always the way it is. There, I could give you many examples of where change is happening, but there's no way that I would disagree that that historically has been the, the case. As a result, it's, it, it, the knowledge has not been captured, the contribution has not been recognised, and we're all the poorer for it. Yeah. It's there's there's it, that's sixty thousand years in the making, um, and and you know that is is a very real reality. For me, there is an uneasy echo of what happened in my own country, Afghanistan. There, the foreigners came and ignored our culture, our way of life, and our identity. They implemented their ideas of how the country should be governed without consulting the Afghans. My heart was aching a little as I asked Mark what he thought the solution could be going forward. That's the reason why I'm talking to you, mate, because you show what we call in Radri, we call it Minjamara, which means I respect me, you respect you, we respect each other and we learn slow. So if people did that, I think this program would be okay. When I first saw those emerald leaves, I could have never imagined that a simple plant would resonate so closely with me. But there's nothing humble about the barragon with all its uses and its amazing curative powers. Those leaves carry with them tens of thousands of years of indigenous knowledge, which Western science is only now beginning to confirm. For me, the hidden story of the barragon turned out to echo my own story of Australia. It made me think about my short history in Australia, my identity, even my name. 
It made me think about the need for respecting a culture that is not your own and realize how that's one thing which still needs to change in today's Australia. That story was by Mustafa Nuristani, Jiao Wei and Qin Yu Huang. Next time on Uncurated, a poem, a house and the pursuit of a legacy. A single illustrated page, it was one of some 700 items left to the University of Melbourne by Russell Grimwade, pharmacologist, hobbyist and collector, and his wife, Mab. The letter began like this. This is the house that Aeneas built. This is the chimney that smoked in the house that Aeneas built. Uncurated is made on the land of the Wurundjeri people by graduate students at the Centre for Advancing Journalism. Our producer is Nell Gerards, and sound design is by Clancy Barlin. Our theme tune is by Ben Salter as part of the Living Instruments Project. Special thanks to our executive producers, Rachel Fountain and Louisa Lim, and thanks also to Ryan Johnson, Ryan Jeffries, and everyone in the museums and collections department. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like our podcast, please tune into The Yarn, where you can hear Mustafa and producer Nell Gerards talking about Uncurated. I'm Angus Thompson. See you next time.